Hello, it's Andrew, the producer here, with a quick note about today's show. Partway through the recording, we lost Roz Taylor's internet, so she disappears for a bit, but she does come back at the end. So have a listen and see if you can hear the join. Hello and welcome to the Matter is Closed edition of Romaniacs. Inspired by the government's response to every scandal, every time someone disagrees with me today, I will simply say the magic words, I consider that the matter is closed, and that will be the end of that. I'm Dorian Linsky, joining me today are a couple of our regulars. Still stuck in Mykonos after his flight got cancelled for the 19th time, it's our European Bureau Chief, Alex Andreu. Hi Alex. Hello. I laughed, but really I'm crying inside. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, you've been whiling away the time uh, by following the British Galileo story. Uh, what's what's happening there? Have they done a grayling? <laughs> well, they haven't quite done a grayling in that the company they're bidding on does actually have satellites. Um, <laughs> Good start. But they, but they are the wrong sort of satellites, um, and they're too small and too low to be retrofitted for the sort of uh, uh, GPS uh, or Galileo-type rival that we want. But uh, uh, what I understand is the case is that they've been promised by this company that if they survive, they will add this uh, technology to their next generation of satellites. So we're paying a huge amount of money for Jam tomorrow, when actually there Space is, jam. <laughs> yes, there's there's a really great system that we've paid for that we helped design and that we could have access to just by agreeing to the rules we co-drafted, um, but we don't want it because it has the word European in it. And where can people read your piece about this? Uh, in Byline Times. Also with us is Roz Taylor of the LSE Brexit blog and the Romaniacs British Fish Desk. Hi, Roz. Hi, Brian. Are you, are you going to ask me how I am? I'm really hoping you're going to ask me how I am because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm ready to go. I'm uh, fit as a butcher's dog. <laughs> Do some press-ups yep. now. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, Roz, unlocking is wildly inconsistent across the country. Um, has coronavirus sort of effectively... Accelerated devolution by pushing Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland even sort of further out of Westminster's orbit. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's become suddenly very clear that we do have borders and they can be enforced uh, with all the different lockdown regulations in different parts of the country. And we had this ludicrous moment just after PMQs today when a an MP complained to Boris Johnson that uh, there was talk of quarantining English visitors to Scotland if they went on holiday. And Johnson got very indignant and said there was no border between Scotland and England. And you can imagine how Nicola Sturgeon um, has reacted to that. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And of course, holidays are the flashpoint for all this, because holidays are when English people tend to go to Wales and Scotland for their holidays, and and, and they want to do so. Um, And... It is for a long time the feeling, particularly in Wales, that English people exploit Welsh resources in all sorts of ways, whether it's water, reservoirs, holidaying, and, and uh, that that will become even more acute now, that feeling. And it's why the air bridges that the government wants to set up are so important, because they're going to provide uh, basically a safety valve for people who are immensely frustrated and want to go on holiday. Our special guest this week raises spirits across the land every Sunday morning with his diagnoses of the Labour left, the future of British politics, the rise of populism (laughs) and other fun developments in The Observer. Returning to Romaniacs, it's Nick Cohen. Hi, Nick. Hello there. So last week, uh, we saw the swift defenestration of Rebecca Long-Bailey over a retweet of an interview with actor Maxine Peake. Um, Has Starmer decided that he doesn't need the Labour left on side and that the people who are angered by this um, were sort of out to get him anyway. What, what do you think the political calculation is quite apart from the, you know, the issue of the zero tolerance of anti-Semitism? What's the calculation? Well, he knows at the last election, uh, Labour canvassers were knocking on doors of people who've always voted Labour and said, some people said, I'm not going to vote for a racist party. I'm not going to vote for an anti-Semitic party. I'm not going to vote for a party that supports dictatorship in Iran, in Russia, in Venezuela. And 
he's just said if we're ever ever going to get close to power again remember they've already lost four elections lose five and you start wondering well what the hell's the point of this party uh you've got to um we, we've got to have a break with this and uh, an underestimated I, I wrote about this but uh, not many others did underestimated thing about starmer is he's seen it all first of all he was in the meetings with corbyn with seamus milne with all the uh, post-Stalinists, to put it politely, in his own constituency in Camden, every uh, minor election in every for every branch secretary in the local Labour Party has been the most savage political war. Momentum in Camden absolutely uh, went for him, denounced him, even though, I mean, to his shame, I would say, even though to his shame uh, he he loyally served Corbyn and never uttered any protest you know, they knew he wasn't one of them and they went for him they went for his friends so you know it is personal as well the 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 internecine warfare and labor party he, he's lived through it all uh so as much as the political calculation i imagine there's some uh, there's some personal calculation there as well well, meanwhile, Seamus Milner's finally gone. Um, in the momentum elections, the more conciliatory forward momentum factions swept the board while the anti-Starmer uh, momentum renewal flopped. What has happened to that part of, of the Labour left? Is it as impotent as it seems? Or is it kind of licking its wounds and regrouping? Is it something that kind of that, that, that could cause serious trouble for Starmer later, even though it seems incapable of doing so now? Well, even now, it's more powerful than it has been any time since the 1980s. Um, uh, you, you've got to remember that, that there are a lot of safe seats were given to a lot of pro-Corbyn candidates before the election. Um, Claudia Webb, who was parachuted into Leicester, has just been on uh, been on the news recently for the Leicester lockdown. So there's that. I, I, I mean, the real question, to me anyway, perhaps I'm being over-rational, is... What's its political project? What's it trying to do? What does it want? Because I would have thought the thing to have done after Starmer won was to concentrate on policy. Mm. Um, is to say, we want this, and you give us this, and we'll be quiet. Yeah, yeah, have a negotiation, but it's like they can't help themselves. Perhaps I'm looking at Twitter, and I should really just deactivate Twitter. But all of it. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean. If, if you could do that, if you could do that, Nick, you'd do us all a big fucking favour. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing, you know, the genie appears from the lamp, you've got three wishes. One, close down Twitter, okay? <laughs> then Facebook, then Instagram. Why Instagram? It's just fashion pics. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, um... But you know, they can't help themselves. Um, they're not thinking strategically at all. And that's because they got, the, the, you know, after the 2017 election, when they did better than expected, they were like dealers who got high on their own supply and have just got carried away and are not thinking, well, we're, we're a minority in the party. We're going to have to eat some shit. But we're gonna, we, we could easily say we want to keep as Labour policy, X, Y, Z, we'll drop the rest and have a negotiation. Uh, but they don't seem to be doing it at all. It's all, all they're, they're, they're. Well, there was more There was more sort of complaints about the Rebecca Long-Bailey uh, sacking than there was talk about the you know, Lisa Nandy's actual policy of a, of a boycott on goods from uh, the occupied territories if the annexation went oh, ahead. No, yeah. so, so the actual policy towards Israel um, seemed to be of less interest to them than the kind of factional rhetoric. Well, look, I'm taking you back into the history of not just fascism, but of communism too, which after, in the 1940s, became very anti-Semitic and of Christian anti-Semitism as well. These things run very, very deep. And it strikes me, and I've been saying for years, is that racial conspiracy is essential to the far left because so much else of its mentality is conspiratorial. That elections are a sham, that the working class is brainwashed into, into not voting for communists, that uh, the whole world is, is a facade behind which lie the real rulers manipulating and, uh, and cheating people. And if you go down that road, sooner or later, you, you will get into anti-Semitism because who are in 
communist, fascist, ultra-religious reactionary um, thoughts who are the ultimate manipulators, it's the Jews. And I think they find it terribly, terribly hard to give up. Um, my mother actually knows Maxine Peake in the Labour Party in Manchester, and she told her off, which made me... Uh, Maybe, maybe feel sorry for Maxine Peake having experienced some of my mother's telling stuff over the years. But, you know, I'm sure, I, I'm sure Maxine, Maxine didn't even, it's so automatic now. You don't say a white cop kills a black man in America and think, you know what? They don't need anyone to teach them how to do that. They've been doing it for 400 years. You know, um, uh, uh, you, you don't think about the whole history of slavery, of the Klan, of Jim Crow, of the mass incarcerations of blacks in the prison system, you have to bring Jews into it. And that is just automatic on the British left. I was rather critical of Keir Starmer. As I said, it was a, it was a shameful thing to do to serve in his shadow cabinet, to my mind. But he is just saying, you know, enough of all of this. It's, it, this will not stand anymore. And, uh, and, he, and to my mind, he deserves some credit for that. Because if you get rid of of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, then a whole lot of other conspiratorial uh, views and madnesses which are tied to anti-Semitism will go with it. Later in the show, we'll be talking about what the Mark Sedwell and Robert Jenrick affairs tell us about the state of the state, a look at the rise of the spiked pundit farm, and the latest Brexit news on the day after the deadline to ask the EU for a transition extension went whizzing by. But first, a quick reminder from Alex. Our live stream is back. Huzzah! Next Thursday, 9th of July on Zoom at 8pm and it's exclusive to our Patreon backers. If you haven't drained your emergency drinks cabinet yet, then sign up via Patreon and join regulars from Romaniacs and our sister podcast, The Bunker, for an evening of politics talk, ill-advised cocktails and novelty Zoom backgrounds, including our partners streaking you. It's immense fun to have you there live, but if you can't make it on the night, our supporters on Patreon get exclusive video and audio recordings afterwards. Oh, and of course, there are those splendid mugs, T-shirts and other benefits to supporting us as well. Whether you are new or an existing supporter, there's a post on Patreon telling you how to register for the Zoom chat. Everyone else, search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. That's Thursday, 9th of July at 8pm on Zoom. Thanks, Alex. Let's start with a tale of two scandals. Earlier this week, after days of negative briefings, Dominic Cummings secured the resignation of the Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor, Sir Mark Sedwell. The UK's senior civil servant has been blamed for the UK's disastrous COVID response and accused of obstructing the Dom and Boris show. The position of National Security Advisor will now be filled by enthusiastic Brexit fan and stonewalling non-negotiator David Frost, who is a political appointee rather than a civil servant diplomat. Theresa May has attacked Go for appointing someone with no proven expertise to the role. Good to have Theresa May back. <laughs> Meanwhile, Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government Robert Jenrick reversed a planning decision in order to save developer and Conservative donor Richard Desmond a cool £40 million. Desmond said he didn't want to give the Marxist in Tower Hamlets any dough. Jenrick then reversed his reversal and is still in post. We are told the matter is, ding, ding, closed. Roz, uh, do, do these cases tell us that loyalty is magic in this government? That if you're a sort of tainted Remainer, your days are numbered. But if you're on side, you can get away with anything. Well, sort of. Um, I mean, it's not so much about loyalty, because that would imply there was some sort of intellectual consistency involved, which clearly there isn't. It's just a matter of straightforward obedience, really, because you can have been a Remainer. I mean, Matt Hancock was a Remainer, uh, but he's successfully transformed himself into a Lever, and that's okay now. We see the same thing with Boris Johnson, where he was a sort of liberalish London mayor who wanted to stay on the single market, and now look at him. Um, it's it's really a matter matter of uh, really trimming your trimming yourselves to the wind and the trouble with that of course is that it narrows the field of people you can choose from to the very ambitious or the very stupid uh, and that's what we see with the current cabinet that's mr mr hancock there <laughs> um moving on to sedwell Roz, is the government trying to pin the covid mess on him um and will that work when most people don't know who he or indeed any civil servant is uh, no i don't think it will I mean, it's been an extraordinary few months because we had a weird, weird period when Johnson was very ill and in hospital and recovering, when really 
if you recall, no significant decisions could be made because the constitutional arrangements in this country didn't allow anybody to be installed as a stand-in for Johnson. And so there, 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 for, for me at the time, it was extraordinary just, just realising that there was no plan, nobody could say anything because Johnson had absolute power and we had to wait until he was capable uh, I use that word loosely, of making decisions. And then before that, of course, we had the period when uh, he was trying to decide if and when to go into lockdown. And we know from the minutes of the SAGE meetings, and we know what was going on now, that it was very much a government decision informed by SAGE. And I don't see how Sedwill can really be brought into it at all. It's a mystery to me how he can be held accountable in any way. Nick, the generic case seems especially uh, egregious. I mean, very sort of old-fashioned uh, Tory um, behaviour, literally it's making sure that millions of tens of million pounds were taken away from uh, disadvantaged communities um, and kept by a very rich man. Under a previous administration, in a kind of pre-Brexit world, would you have expected this to, to, to be a scandal which he would have resigned already? Uh I think there'd been a better chance if COVID wasn't happening because that's so dominated the news. I mean, it is just disgusting. Um, one reason why, of course, he may not have resigned is Richard Desmond has not just been uh, schmoozing this character. He's been schmoozing Boris Johnson. And uh, just as a side point in terms of cultural history, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a porn baron. He, st- he made his fortune in pornography. Um, and there was a time when uh, hypocritical, heterosexual, white upper middle class men, though they may be, Tories would have fought twice before associating themselves and doing favours with porn barons. But then there was a time when Tories would have felt once, twice, a thousand times before ever letting someone like Boris Johnson lead their party. So uh, we are in a new world. Uh, yes, I think he probably, uh, the government would have been under far, far more pressure if, um, you know, we weren't living through this health catastrophe, which obviously so, obviously so dominates the coverage. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, uh, the Conservatives seem so well established. It's, it sounds like wishful thinking to imagine them ever losing. But there is a whiff coming from this government now of if you're the boss's made man, if you're one of his guys, it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're Dominic Cummings or Jenrick mm. or whoever, you, you will never have to resign. And I'm not, I, I think if that keeps building up, that will present a long-term uh, uh, problem for the Conservative Party. There's just a, however different these ages are, there's just a bit of the smell of the decay of the major administration around them now. Right, because there is the assumption sometimes that people go, well, if, if someone hasn't resigned, then the scandal didn't really matter. But obviously the damage, enormous damage was done to the government's reputation and poll ratings by the coming scandal, even though he stayed in place. And and if when that story came out, Dominic, Dominic Cummings had resigned or even just apologised, none of that damage would have happened. Hmm. You know, as it is, uh, it's done them, it's done them uh, a vast amount of damage. That idea of one law for them, another law for us is 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 a killer and it's a sign of uh johnson's hubris um that he doesn't realize how once that view gets settled in the public mind uh a politician and his party is in an awful lot of trouble alex cummings is uh very much loathed in the country now but does the removal of said will show that you know uh in number 10 where it counts is that he's actually stronger than ever or is that just what he's trying to put across um he will i mean he will be increasingly stronger until he's out that's the nature of the beast when you survive a scare you're emboldened this leads you to worse successes and more overreach which causes your next brush with people calling for your resignation. So that is how the cycle works. But I think it's a mistake, and and I've seen it a lot recently, to consider Johnson slash Cummings as one entity. They're not. Their objectives will eventually diverge because 
you know, Johnson's legacy is to be thought of as a, as a great prime minister via the route of least resistance because he's ultimately a really fucking lazy man. Um, while Cummings's legacy is to shake up all of Whitehall, and at some point those two things will clash. Well, you're a former a civil servant. Do you think... What will this do to the civil service if they're sort of frightened of being trashed in public and have these almost these sort of ceremonial uh, executions? Uh, obviously, Cummings thinks it'll it'll mm. it'll make them buck their ideas up, um, but will it? <laughs> you know, of of all the things that we've said, we've said this many times in this program that we have a a sort of constitutional uh, a, a nexus that depends on convention, depends on basically on people being decent. And the civil service is, is at the centre of that because it literally cannot respond to shit politicians throw at it. Um, and so a lot of people misunderstand its role. The civil service is not there just to implement government policy. It's part of our democratic checks and balances. It's there to act as a break often. You want risk-averse people pointing out the pitfalls, so you can be bold. To be bold necessitates you knowing all the facts. Otherwise, you may just be being stupid. How do you know the difference if you don't know the facts? And and the worry, Alex, is that in this kind of culture where, you know, Cummings originally says, oh, I want weirdos and misfits with original ideas. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Nor does Johnson. He wants yes men and yes women. Um, uh, the danger is that, uh, to use a cliche, that civil servants will worry that they're damaging their careers if they speak truth to power. Mm. There was a, a, a briefing in the Telegraph in February uh, 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 from very senior conservative sources which provided what they called a shit list of senior civil servants they wanted out and, yeah, and yeah. when you look when you look for explanations it's because you know uh so and so at the treasury was saying brexit could cause a lot of economic problems well <laughs> you want the treasury to be saying that because it's true <laughs> one it's true and two <laughs> ministers have got to understand what, what, what the problems are ahead and as alex says they're then perfectly entitled to uh ignore it or do what they want civil servants are not policy makers they 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 they, they always uh, i wish people met more civil servants because they're nothing like the caricature yeah i mean they, they always say they, they follow the political policy but but it's their it's their job on on behalf of the rest of us to spell out the problems. yeah i i think i think at the moment it's actually even more basic than that just speaking to people i used to work with who work in Whitehall now, I think they, they've gone beyond this idea that they're frightened of being trashed in public. I think I think they're just knackered, actually. They're too exhausted oh, yeah. to be frightened um, because fear can be a driver if used right. It's not a pleasant thing, but it can drive performance. But if you work in, con- in a constant adrenaline rush for four years, eventually you're too tired to be scared. You're too tired to be anything or do anything. And I think a lot of people are there right now. I'd be very interested to see the figures for civil servants signing off with mental health problems and stress-related uh, and Alex, And Alex, then they've had COVID on top of this, where, you know, friends of mine in the Treasury say they have never seen people work so hard. Mm, mm. You know, it, it, so you've had Brexit, you've had uh, uh, um, uh, an authoritarian administration, which, as Ross was saying, they're really rather pathetically trying to shuffle off its responsibilities and blame civil servants for its own fault. And then you've had the COVID crisis, which across Whitehall has just been absolutely massive. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at all surprised if people would just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a job as an SAS soldier because it'd be an easier life. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to recommend a thread um, by the historian Robert Saunders, a former Romaniacs guest, where he says, uh, if we want a more presidential system, we need to build the democratic safeguards of a presidency. Without them, every chain simply concentrates power in number 10 and removes constraints. Uh, and he's very good on constitutional uh, implications. 
Roz, finally, what did you make of Boris Johnson's uh, supposedly Rooseveltian New Deal this week? George Eaton in the New Statesman points out that £5 billion is only 0.2% of GDP, whereas Roosevelt's New Deal deal was a smidgen higher at 40%. This is just extraordinary because these announcements are almost all rehashes of stuff that's already been announced, and in some cases are even less than was previously promised. I mean, you're talking about rebuilding 50 schools. That is barely one borough's worth in London. I mean, it's just hardly anything. And it's also the obsession with building that Boris Johnson has. And we've talked about this before and his love of, you know, riding on, riding on big machines and stuff. But it, it, it betrays a sort of fundamental lack of understanding of what the labour market looks like. Not everyone can be a builder and the jobs that are going to be lost uh, are usually often going to be part-time service industry jobs that women are doing. And yes, women can be builders, but I can assure you that it would be impossible for me, for example, to be a builder. Um, You know, I'm too old, I'm too unhealthy uh, and I have childcare responsibilities. You cannot just move the workforce around like you're playing Bob the Builder on on your play mat. And it's it's amazing to me that he thinks that just talking about building things is in some way going to restart and stimulate an economy which is very dependent on the service industry and has been for a long time. Sounds like you're talking Britain down again. (sighs) What do you about that? All I do, isn't it? It's all I do. If you've just arrived in Britain from space, you might assume that the most powerful and popular political grouping in the country was a group of former Marxists turned hard-right libertarians based around the website Spiked Online. Brendan O'Neill, its figurehead, both figuratively and literally, is a regular on TV news shows. Claire Fox made her name as a contrarian on Radio 4's The Moral Maze and founder of the Academy of Ideas before becoming a Brexit Party MEP. And now another graduate, Manira Mertzer, is head of the Number 10 Policy Unit after a spell as Boris Johnson's Deputy Mayor for Culture and Education in London. How did a tiny far-left group evolve into outriders for the libertarian right? Nick, um, this is this is quite a complicated story, but we should at least try and, and give you the, uh, the thumbnail version. I'll give of, it a go. <laughs> of the, um, you know, that they started as, as they started as the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party, um, and obviously some of them were too young to be there at the beginning. Of course, um, yeah. But did you first encounter them in their uh, in their original kind of eighties guys? He, uh, I encountered them like a lot of people uh, when they engaged in the nineteen nineties equivalent of Holocaust denial. There were uh, Serb concentration camps in Bosnia and uh, ITN and my colleague Ed Villiarmi from The Guardian came across them and filmed uh, uh, what was happening to these Bosnian, Bosnian Muslim men, because they separated the men from the women, who were all behind barbed wire. And there was a famous picture of a Bosnian man called uh, Fikrit who uh, was just emaciated behind the barbed wire. And they said, and they came out in their magazine, LM, Living Marxism, saying this was, this was a forgery, that the reporters had invented the whole thing. And they were obviously supporting the um, Milosevic, who kind of in that world of was called himself a socialist. He was anti-Western, so therefore he's okay. He must be okay. And uh, there was, in the end, the reporters sued him for libel. And uh, um, what's so staggering about the libel trial was they offered absolutely no evidence to justify this to justify this creation of a myth that the Western media had invented atrocities against Muslims by Serbs. Uh, They just said, well, you know, you shouldn't question us, you shouldn't take us to court. And, uh, of course, the the myth they started to this day in Serbia is used by revanchist Serb nationalists to say, we are the real victims here. We never committed these crimes against uh, against humanity. That's when I came across them. But by that time, they were already moving from the Revolutionary Communist Party, which was kind of a, a breakaway from the Socialist Workers Party, to being media darlings um, and ultra-capitalists. But typically... That move by uh, Claire Fox, by Frank Ferradi, by Brendan O'Neill, 
they did it as a Leninist party. They sat down and said the new party line is we can't have global revolution. Uh, 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 capitalism has won. Therefore, we as a party will move and uh, engage in some kind of Gramsci and Marx through the institutions of of the right. And they were popping up everywhere. They were popping up. You know, I, I, I was involved. You know, I'm, I'm an atheist. I was involved with humanist movements. They were setting up front humanist groups. They were setting up something called the Festival of Ideas, and you go along somewhat naively thinking this is just a space for debate. No, it was them. Uh, they were all over the BBC, um, uh, particularly the Moral Maze. Maybe they got lost in there. Oh, no, 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 no. They, they, they run the place. Sorry. They, they got through it by, by, by keeping on turning right. Uh, they, 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 they hooked up with Policy Exchange, which is, was and is a very interesting Tory think tank. Claire Fox and about five others stand, uh, stood for the Brexit party in, in the elections. And... They understood something not just about where the money was, and they get loads of money from the Koch brothers and big corporations for you know d denying global warming or saying anyone criticizing any aspect of corporate behavior is is secretly wants to do down working class people who just want to enjoy burgers, fags, and booze or what have you. Uh, they understood something very important about the modern media and how it lives on fake controversy. Um, I'll give you this example. Roz might write a, uh, an opinion piece, and, and it gets a lot of notice. And if she keeps doing that, sooner or later, someone from the, a researcher from the BBC will phone her up and say, Roz, that was a great piece you wrote. And Roz will say, oh, thanks very much. And the researcher will say, you know your argument X would you say, and then they'll just start pushing it further. And Ross, being a, uh, a, an honest intellectual, will say, well, you know, that's that's a bit tricky. There's a reason I didn't write this. But could you just say that? And Ross might think, well, all right, I'll just say that. And then they say, and then could you just say this? And they will move it, move it down the track until you were in an absurd extremist in the broadest sense of the word position. And Ross, of course, will say no and put the phone down. The Revolutionary Communist Party never said no. You know, the modern media's de desire for on the daily politics, on Sky, on Moral Maze, on Radio 4, for sharp, insane, uh, uh, op opposing positions, they would always go along with that. And, you know, I should have realized at the time, I, I wrote this about 20 years ago, but I should have realized at the time, of course, that's what that's the way politics was going as well. Partly media driven, too. Um, it's fascinating you should say that, Nick, because as it happens, I have been responsible for commissioning Brendan O'Neill, um, a leading spike commentator on the, in the past, because I was deputy editor on The Guardian's Comment is Free for quite some time in the late around 2006, 2010 kind of time. Oh, right. And that meant that I had Brandon O'Neill ringing me up and saying, I've, you know, I've, I've read this on your website and it's just, oh, it's just rubbish, isn't it? Come on, come on. You can't let that stand. It's just, no, there's no common sense at all. And basically um, what he did very effectively at the time was to play on a sense of, I suppose, slight guilt on our part that we might not be re representing all points of view accurately. And you have to remember this was a different era when things have not become as extreme as they have at the moment. Mm. And also the sheer contrarianism and the knowledge that what he wrote would get clicks because it was provocative and we depended on clicks for advertising revenue. And fundamentally, yep. that was what was driving the publication, the fact that he was even able to get regularly onto The Guardian's Comment is Free website, which is not something I'm proud of, by the way, but which I freely admit to. And it was all part of this ecosystem, as you say, Nick, of professional contrarianism and knowing the weaknesses of the left and where, from a personal experience in many cases, and where you could carve a way in. So Alex, the traditional justification for contrarianism is that, you know, fizzy prose and provocative arguments and worth reading if you disagree and, and, and so on. 
but the spike lot write the same piece over and over again in the most turgid, cliched prose. Now, obviously, that does not stop them from getting onto the BBC, you know, BBC Sky Papers and so on. But what's the point to this stuff? Is there any? Is there a significant readership? Are they? Are there any interesting ideas there, or is it it's, simply a kind of hustle? You know, it's. It, this is what's interesting. I did a little bit of research and I found out that um, Brendan O'Neill hasn't actually been on any of the BBC flagship programmes since that controversy last fall when he called for Brexiters to riot if there's another extension over which the BBC received almost 600 complaints. So even mm. though they dismissed them, they haven't had him back as far as I can see. I mean, he might have been in some small radio program, but I checked the sort of flagship stuff, and he hasn't been on there. Um, but such was his uh, ubiquity before that I was sure he had been on loads of times. Of course, he's now been replaced, you know, by the Ella Whelans and Slater, the deputy editor. So other people go mm. on programs. But the biggest, um, you know, the most sinful uh, by far are Sky News. I mean, they have these people on all the time, which is extraordinary considering how, how, what a small group they are, what small readership they have. I... I I know very few. I know more people who write for Spiked than than who read it, for fuck's sake. And yet there they are all the time. I mean, with people like Brendan O'Neill and Ella Whelan, you get the sense that their main job is going on those pundit shows, and then yeah. they write a little bit on the side. And that to me seems bizarre, especially when what they're going to say is utterly predictable. Well, when on Twitter now, there is always a thing. Something comes up, and someone, and there's always a load of jokes going. Brendan O'Neill is writing, da da da, and then he writes that piece. So it's sort of <laughs> like it's, it's beyond critique. It's beyond parody. <laughs> he writes that piece in his time off from writing how shit the BBC are which is now the piece he's writing practically on a weekly basis since the BBC stopped inviting him on. Nick, you're an expert on the kind of weirder parts of the, um, of the left. Um, and what we've got here is, is sort of the former staff of living Marxism um, being praised by the kind of people who hate Marxism and so-called cultural Marxism and, and so don't seem to sort of mind at all of their past. And at the same time, you've got people like Fox and O'Neill insisting that they are not right wing and getting very offended if you call them right wing. So what? But they constantly seem to agree with people on the right. Is is there any legitimacy in their claim that they are actually like you know the true, the true left, um, and and the rest of the left is just misunderstanding it, or is it just a lie? Because if they just go, yeah, we're right wing, then they'd kind of lose their USP. Uh, yeah, it is a lie. Um, but it's, uh, you say we're the parts of the left. The Revolutionary Communist Party, the, the idea, its idea was no different from most of the far left in time, no different from Jeremy Corbyn, the left of the Labour Party. That is this. The idea is that uh, reform, um, Labour governments are, are, are betray you, um, that you need you need revolutionary change and your main enemies are the same enemies lenin had they are they are the people who think the system can be can be changed from within uh and so you spend your whole time as they did as Faraday did as fox did when they were young denouncing the labor party denouncing trade unions denouncing the institutions that people have built up in britain to make things a little bit better then it is very easy once you drop your socialism to go to the right and you carry on denouncing the Labour Party. You carry on denouncing trade unions. You carry on denouncing, you know, green activists campaigning on climate change. You just drop the revolutionary critique. Nothing else has changed. Uh, the stridency, the repetition you mentioned. That, that is why they fit in so well with uh, Boris Johnson, with Policy Exchange, with Nigel Farage, is 
they don't really have to change that much. And I'm sure, you know, we'll see uh, some of Corbyn's, younger Corbyn supporters today making the same journey if they realise that's where the future is. There is a final point in going back to, you know, Ros shouldn't feel too ashamed for commissioning people, is, is that they represent an even greater problem to my mind. What is going on in universities? What is going on with council culture is well worth criticising. You know, there's, there's a lot of things wrong with that world. Uh, it's well worth criticising, you know, from the left, by feminists, by all kinds of people. What spiked and the RCP have done is they're like squatters. They've squatted on the ground where a principled, coherent, progressive uh, critique of, uh, for want of a better word, woke politics should be, um, and, and made that impossible. Uh, and they've done that in the most hypocritical sense, uh, sense imaginable, because I'm, uh, I'm rather old-fashioned. I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist. Um, but if you're going to say you're for freedom of speech, you've got to recognise that by far the greatest restriction on freedom of speech most listeners to this podcast will face is restrictions at work. It is employers, whether public or private sector, corporations, silencing whistleblowers, making people build their tongues. And of course, they never mention that because they get their money yeah. from corporations and the cop <laughs> brothers. You know, and so by all means, you know, if if uh, and it's far worse than American it is here. There's some really nasty stuff going on in America now. Um, but by all means, criticise academics who don't defend academic freedom and turn on a colleague who speaks out of line in a university. Quite right. By all means, defend J.K. Rowling's right to speak. But, you know, you've also got to, if you have any intellectual credibility or consistency about you, look at what happens in the workplace. Look at the power of money. Uh, and, of course, that they will never do. So, Nick, I want to just wrap up by asking, what, I mean, how you actually respond to these people? Because, I mean, there's, there's sort of, there doesn't seem to be any point in trying to sort of counter the arguments of a, of a sort of Brendan O'Neill uh, column. Um, and yet you do have people like Manira Meza in quite important positions. It did, they do seem to be able to sort of steer the debate. Is there an ideological project, a serious project here to wrestle with? Or is there a kind of just a rolling grift in order to kind of keep things spicy and, and keep them on telly? Like, is, is, is there a project that we should take seriously and, in, and, and try and, you know, counter? Oh, there is an ideological project, yes. Um, uh, it's the ideology of Trump. Uh, it's the ideology of uh, Brexit. Um, it is uh, coming up with um, uh, uh, pseudo-class-based arguments for reactionary policies. It's fighting culture war. A murder in Downing Street urged Johnson to turn the last election, the 2019 election, into a culture war. He said there's no need. Corbyn will give me millions of votes on his own. I don't need to do anything. She's urged him again to do it in recent weeks um, because, you know, that's what works for the American right. That's what she and, and the RCP believe in. Johnson's divot about it and doesn't actually like doing it very much um but that's the pressure they're coming from i'm sure when the tories are in the corner and as we were saying earlier in the program you know that 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 moment could be coming that they will turn to that as as a as a means of uh, of 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 uh shoring up their vote you aren't you fight them by exposing them. i mean for years there's only been in in the national press there's some very good bloggers there's a guy called bob from broccoli who everyone should read but in, in the mm -hmm. national press it's been me and george monbio year in year out every time we've got a slow week we said oh, we'll do the revolutionary communist party again because they're still on the moral maze you know and still michael burke is not asking them a single hard question about who they are and what they believe in you know as i said i believe in freedom of speech freedom of speech does not exclude the right to criticise. Freedom of speech demands criticism and hard questions, and the BBC and Sky never asked hard questions. They never said, well, hold on a second, Claire Fox. You worked on living Marxism when it was publishing fake news stories about uh, excusing the Serbs as they, as they, as they massacre Bob, uh, Bosnian Muslims. 
what the fucking hell are you doing on a program called The Moral Maze? They didn't because they couldn't. Because these people understand that once you're inside the media, once you're there as a BBC talent or Sky talent or whatever, you never get asked the hard questions. Now it's time to indulge the better angels of our nature, and that means to the barricades, where we suggest a cause that's a better use of your time than reading old copies of Living Marxism. (laughs) Nick Cohen, as our special guest, uh, it's your turn to suggest somewhere our listeners can put their energies. Uh, If I had as much money as uh, Jeff Bezos, or whatever he's called, I would give a fortune to the Citizens Advice Bureau because it covers so many different areas and because if you are educated uh if you speak english as fluently as a first language or fluently as a learned learned language you do not begin to know how badly poor people uh how badly uh, immigrants are treated by organizations public and private sector it's not that they stop them getting what they're not entitled to they stop them getting what they are entitled to anyone who works in the citizens advice bureau or a law center will say 99.9 percent of our time is just making sure that people get what they ought to have been given in the first place and so i'll give them money i'll give them loads of money <laughs> great great cause Before we go, there's just time to round up some of the smaller Brexit stories of the week. Poland is being threatened with a smaller payment from the EU Coronavirus Recovery Fund because of its repressive activities towards LGBT citizens and its cavalier attitude to the rule of law. Poland is making a mockery of our values and gets rewarded for it, complained one EU diplomat. Alex, is this this a good thing to to, to have financial penalties for these uh, autocratic regimes? And is there a harder line yet that could be taken? Look, it is and it isn't because the the problem is that if it becomes a if it becomes a, a financial calculation, then you're giving people permission to do really shitty things and pay the fine afterwards. Um, and so, as a first step, as a sort of uh, warning bell being rung, yes, I support it fully, but I think. Uh, you need to find different sanctions that will actually bite um, when, you know, countries are being incompatible. You know, what Poland is doing, what Hungary is doing a lot of the time, is incompatible with the EU. If they were up to this shit before they joined, they wouldn't be allowed to join. It's as simple as that. Roz, even though we've passed the extension threshold, no deal is apparently looking a bit less likely this week, which is probably counterintuitive to people that haven't been following it. Uh, What's going on here? Well, it's very hard to tell, is the first thing to say. But there have been indications that Johnson is moving away from countenancing no deal, although he may still talk the talk about it being, you know, if we can always walk away, etc., etc., because he recognises that he has a stronger opponent in Keir Starmer than he did in Jeremy Corbyn, and because he doesn't want to give Starmer the ammunition of... Johnson essentially failing to uh, to have secured a deal. It would make him look like a failure in many respects if he if he walks away or if he go, gets away, he, he just leave without one. And he suspects that Starmer would take full advantage of that. So some people, some commentators, not all of them, think that that makes it less likely that we will crash out. Uh, and finally, you've got some squid news for us, which is a very niche uh, bit of <laughs> a bit of seafood policy. Yeah, I have to admit, this came as a shock to me because I I thought I knew a reasonable amount about the British fishing industry by now. Not not an expert by any means, but no, it turns out that there's a big squid issue. And it comes out of that locus of all that's most British, the Falkland Islands. Because (laughs) apparently about a third of the Falkland Islands government revenue comes from fish, including squid. And this squid goes is caught and goes into Spanish ports and is then eaten by southern Europeans. Apparently about half of all the calamari eaten in southern Europe is from the Falkland Islands. And this means that it is imperative we get a deal on fish uh, because otherwise the fish, the squid in particular, would be subject to a 6% import tariff, which might make it very uncompetitive in squid terms. 
So it all comes back to Falkland Islands again, basically. That's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> That's our podcast for this week. The Brexit Bridge will return next week. Thanks to Roz and Alex and our guest, Nick Cohen. Nick, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I'm trying to... I've got a mass of research from uh, Rob Ford, who's a great political scientist, on the divisions, the long-term divisions in Brexit Britain. And I'm trying to read it without my tiny enumerate brain going all wonky and turn it into a 3,000-word piece. And I've I've just finished a long piece in praise of Anne Applebaum, whose latest book on uh, Trump, Brexit, Orban and Law and Justice is sensationally good. I just think she's one of, the, one of the best writers around at the moment. She's so good because she knew so many people who ended up supporting Brexit and Trump or working for Law and Justice in Poland or for Orban in Hungary, when they all just seemed to be normal centre-right wingers who believed in democracy and open societies and were against communism. And now, as Alex was saying earlier, you know, what is happening in Hungary and Poland is the one-party state is coming back. And Anne was friends with, they were godmother to her children, with loads of people, having just gone along with it, been involved in implementing it, and Brexit and Trump. So she's got this great insider's view uh, of, of, of what is happening to the Western world. I once worked for a drama school which always used to uh, take an intake of students, including one extra fake one, basically an actor that wasn't an actual student, so that the director of the school could basically throw someone out uh, during the first term because that made everyone else pucker up. And I think the European Union is in that position now. They need to show teeth. It's time. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the latest addition to the Roll of Honour that is our list of Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Oliver Lewis, Lisa Nichols, Andrew Butkiewicz, Pula, and Paul Renier. Hello, and many thanks from me to Miranda, Donald McBeath, Simon Hargreaves, Gemma Mikalski, and Dan Morrison. And hello from me to Vanessa May, Judith Poser, Gribbles and Marina Hurst. Take care and see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor and Alexandreo. The producer is me, Andrew Harrison. Audio production was by Robin Leeburn. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.